camping out in Matthew chapter 15 today, verses 21 through 28. If you did bring your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, we're continuing with our story, uh, or our series, Nameless. Today, we're talking about the woman who begged for scraps. And I love this story because this story is about a woman who is just about as far of an outsider as you can get to the people of God. Uh, the context, just to back up, put it in reverse here, uh, and to pull into this story properly, uh, the context is really Jesus and his confrontation with a Pharisee over the issue of that which defiles. So what really religiously, spiritually defiles a human being? And he's just sort of enamored by the pomp and tinsel of religion. He's just sort of caught up in all of the externalities. He's a, he's a box checker. Anybody grow up a box checker? Yeah, I mean, I was a box breaker, like I was a box burner. But, um, but this guy's a box ticker. And he just kind of wants to check all the boxes of external religion and call it good and call that devotion that is acceptable before God. And Jesus has to write this guy. He has to reorient him to what the true, true uh, heart of devotion and faith is. And so what Jesus has to teach him is a doctrine he should already know. He should already know the doctrine, the Jewish doctrine of original sin. What is original sin? It is that you and I are not sinners because we sin. You and I are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And, and Jesus has to teach him it is not uh, a, a piece of shellfish or camel steak that you ingest that would cause you to become defiled spiritually. What would, the only thing that could defile you spiritually is what comes out of the heart because what comes out of the heart is all that evil and disobedience and rebellion and hatred for others. And all that stuff that comes out of a heart that has already been corrupted, all of its faculties corrupted by sin. So Jesus sort of has to teach him, this is Jewish theology 101. And Jesus has already confronted the hypocrisy of the Pharisee in that he has created these externalisms, right? These external laws, these little boxes he can check so he can appear to be devoted or devout before God, but in reality, those boxes, that man-made religion, those regulations, cause him to break Torah law. He's breaking the Old Testament. That's the trade-off for him. So the entire lesson is about hypocrisy and how hypocrisy just won't be acceptable before God. God sees right through it, and hypocrisy is the kind of thing that we're blind to unless someone else points it out to us. And that person is usually a spouse or a seven-year-old living in your house. Boy, seven-year-olds are good at this, aren't they? Little kids, they're good at seeing the hypocrisy in parents. And now Jesus, uh, so the lesson is to show them that Jew and Gentile are like everyone. We're all sinners as to our nature. So the heat, now the, uh, the, the escalating pattern here in Matthew's gospel is very interesting because Jesus starts out sort of just butting heads with the Pharisees and scribes, and now it has come to a point where it's escalated and Jesus has to retreat from Gennesaret. He's probably in the region of Gennesaret, which is in the northwest corner of Galilee, and now he has to go further, push further into Gentile territory, and he arrives at a place called Tyre and Sidon. These are historically areas where pagans live in opposition to God and God's word. 
Tyre and Sidon, in particular, are cities in Philistia or Phoenicia, and they are regularly spoken of in the Old Testament as the classic enemies of God. And Jesus has come to this city now to take refuge, and, but he has mentioned Tyre and Sidon before. In chapter 11, back in chapter 11, he says this to the uh, tri-city area of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And that was supposed to be a good God-fearing Jewish area where everybody were, they were all churchgoers. They were synagogue goers. And they were box checkers too. But they were sleepy and snoozing through their faith, yawning at the sermon and barely singing out, sort of mumbling out their songs. And Jesus says this, to Karaz and Bethsaida and Capernaum, he says, here's what's going to happen. Tyre and Sidon, Sodom and Gomorrah will stand up and testify against you on the day of judgment because the sinners who live there have repented and accepted the Jewish Messiah and the people who were supposed to accept the Jewish Messiah are sitting there hitting the snooze button on their faith. And there's no enthusiasm no sense of urgency in their heart for the living God. And Jesus denounces them. He denounces those cities. And the scripture says, even though he had performed a multitude of miracles there, he says, I offered you mercy and I offered you compassion. I showed you the power of God. And then there was no response of faith. And now he's up entire in Sidon, this place where Canaanites live. These people are the age-old enemies of God and he's there for a reason. In verse 21, we'll pick it up there. It says, uh, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. That's nice. So his disciples came to him and urged him, will you please send her away? For she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent, uh, ma'am, only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me. She said, he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Wow. Yes, it is, Lord. I love her sassiness. You're getting sassy in prayer. Yes, it is, Lord. She said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, ah, oh, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that very moment. The woman is a Canaanite. The Canaanites had generational antipathy and animosity for the Jews and the conquest under the period of Joshua. Her daughter is demon-possessed. That's a horrible thing to experience, to have a little child who lives in your home who is overcome and possessed and oppressed by a demon spirit. And she is probably the reason. Because she has practiced Canaanite religion. Canaanite religion, if you remember that series we did uh, last summer on Joshua, it's freaky, it's a freaky deal. It's horrendous. They practice all kinds of pagan idolatry. They worship everything. They have a whole pantheon, a whole list of gods that they worship, and those gods are in a hierarchy, and they practice all kinds of weird sacrificial rites and reading omens and offering their children to gods, but they're not gods. They're demons. And this little girl who, however it has come about, has now become possessed by a demon, and it's so horrific 
that the woman is desperate. Just three miles from where they are meeting, three miles from this town, there is a temple to Eshman. Eshman was the god of healing. And she has probably gone there time and time again, and Eshman has not answered. And she hears Jesus of Nazareth is in town. And Jesus doesn't answer either. How rude. How harsh. Jesus ignores her. It looks like his answer is, go away. And so she comes to him and and she cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, when she calls him son of David, she doesn't really know what she's saying. I mean, she knows that the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, is probably going to be the the heir of David. But in uh, sort of Canaanite pagan mythology, the son of David is actually Solomon. And in their weird theology, Solomon Uh, this isn't true, but they believe that Solomon had an amulet or a ring and that when Solomon took his ring and and put it on the head of a demon-possessed person, that person would be exercised or set free from that demon. So what does she think? If this guy can really cast out demons, he must be the son of David. He must be Solomon. Come back. So her faith is just messed up, man. Her faith is a mess. She's not ticking the boxes. She doesn't know what she's talking about, but she comes for mercy. And the disciples urge her, as they do in the very next story, in the very next story, uh, they have to feed like 5,000 people or probably even more people than that. And the disciples come and they say the same thing, Lord, send them away. Whenever the disciples can't meet the need, that's their response, just make them go away. And Jesus' reply here is a test of responsiveness. I want you to know this, Jesus is not being mean to the lady. He's not being harsh. This is illustrative. This is an example. This is a test of responsiveness. His silence is a test of her persistence and her desire to get what she came for. And then his response is an illustration of the snarky attitude of Judaic religion toward outsiders. He intends to give her actually what she came for. The reason why we know this is not how Jesus really feels, the reason why we know he's just not being mean is because, one, he answers her prayer with great praise, and two, Matthew's gospel is constructed to be very friendly to outsiders. Who visits Jesus when he's born, after he's born? The Magi. They're not Jews. They're magicians, They're wise men and magicians, and they study all kinds of astrological books. In addition to that, they're really interested in the Torah, the the Jewish Old Testament. And so they have discovered this prophecy, and they track it all the way down to Jesus, and they come and honor Jesus as king as far as they know. We also have the Roman centurion. Other than this woman, the person in the New Testament who is lauded with the greatest degree of faith is the Roman centurion. This man represents all of Rome's oppression of the Jews. And Jesus says, this man has more faith than anyone I've ever met in Israel. Of anyone. And then Jesus grew up in a town or a region called uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's what it was called. It was called Galilee of the Gentiles. He was very comfortable around Gentiles. Jesus has given a parable, for example, of how the kingdom is going to go forth. In Matthew chapter 13, he gives the parable of the mustard seed, and this little tiny seed goes in the ground, and what does it become? It becomes this great, sprawling tree 
into which all the birds and animals and every manner of animal comes to live. What's the analogy? Eventually, the kingdom is, is going out into the world. When the kingdom gets out there in the world, every ethnicity and every person of every stripe and every kind and every belief system, they're going to come and find Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And they're going to come into the kingdom by faith. And at the end of the gospel, we see Jesus raises from the dead and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now you go out and disciple the nations. The word for nations is the word ethnos. It means ethnicities. So the, so the gospel of Matthew is constructed in such a way to push us forward toward the discipleship of all nations. Jesus is not being mean. This is a test of responsiveness for you and I. And her response is remarkable. It's astonishing. She answers wisely, yes, Lord, I know that the dogs don't get the children's bread, but the dogs do get crumbs that fall from the table. Let me ask you, how many of you currently in your house today have that situation? We do in our house, except they don't come from the children's scraps, they come from dad's scraps. Well, my dog, I have him trained, I'm not kidding you, this is the funniest thing. Everywhere I eat, doesn't matter where I eat in front of the TV or at the table or wherever eating, uh, that dog, my little dog Oliver, will come and he will sit right there and I've got him trained. If, if he even whimpers or begs at all, he doesn't get a scrap. But if he sits there obediently and just looks at me and waits, I'll give him the rest of whatever is on my plate and I'm the only one in the house that does that. I really should not do that. But it's an unforgettable lesson to the disciples. What lesson are they learning? They're learning a couple of lessons here. One, Jesus repudiates. Jesus just rebuffs snarky, pharisaic religion, the sin of religion. He rebukes it and corrects it, but he also corrects the snoozing religion of the Galileans who have heard much and received much but responded very little. And what he wants to tell the disciples is this, look boys, there's enough bread to go around for everyone. There's enough forgiveness in the heart of God for all men, enough mercy for the devout and the wanderer alike. So let's look at the lessons of faith that we learned from her. Number one, her faith was in the right object, Jesus the Messiah. Now again, she doesn't know much about Jesus. She sure doesn't know John chapter one. She doesn't know anything about Jesus being the word who was with God and was God in the beginning. She doesn't know anything about that. What she has in front of her is the actual Messiah. She's got the real Jesus. And she has come for a miracle from Jesus, and she's got the right one. He's the real existential Jesus. He is standing there before her, and she puts her faith in the right object, even though she has not passed a theology class yet. She doesn't know much about the doctrine of the Trinity. She, does, she knows very little about Jesus' divine status. She just knows he's a miracle man, he's in my town, and he's right here in front of me. And this is often how God meets our needs early on in our life. I found that the principle is true over 25 years of ministry. I found that the principle is generally true. God typically offers mercy before he requires right belief. I experienced this when I was about 17 or 18 years old. I went um, with some students, a youth group in Virginia. We went to a, uh, a place called Dominica in the Caribbean, one of the Caribbean islands. And we took a whole youth team there. We took 22 kids. And uh, I was one of the youth leaders. And we took 22 kids there. And uh, we just ran a children's camp the whole week. 
And my, my youth pastor who I was working with, he was my mentor at the time. He was just this young, dynamic, amazing speaker. He was so dynamic and he mentored me. And I remember he packed a suitcase full of little keychains and just little key things and pennies. And I said, why are we bringing this junk? He said, man, they will lose their mind over this. I go, no way, I gotta see it. And they did. We would set up camp at the church in Dominica and they would come, kids would come in droves to the camp just so they could get an American penny and so they could just get a little keychain, a little spring uh, keychain. And so every day we would invite them back to, to this big gospel rally or this big gospel service we were doing on Thursday night. And they all came and brought their families and it was great. That church could seat about 250. There was about 300 people in there and it was out the door people listening to the gospel. And the choir, the teen choir sang, my youth pastor gave an amazing message. And then he always had me follow up by giving my testimony of how I came to the Lord. So I got up and preached my testimony, how I came to the Lord. And then he and I both, tag team, we just invited everyone to come down to the front who wanted to give their life to Jesus. And the kids came in droves. I mean, they just came down, all of them, the kids, the teenagers, their parents, they came down to the front and just, it was a, an absolutely joyous occasion to watch so many people come to the knowledge of the Lord. And just as I was standing there, we were praying over kids and leading them to faith. The side door of the church opened and through it came a, a little girl, a little 14 year old girl named Christina. And Christina came through the door and she had another group of friends with her and she grabbed me by the arm and just whisked me out the door, down the steps to the back of the church and between the back of the church and uh, the outhouses, which were their bathrooms, there was this sort of hard dirt ground and there was another crowd gathered there and they were in a circle and she had me by the arm and walked me through that crowd and we walked up to that open circle and there was her friend her name was Christina and her friend's name was Christina as well and Christina I'm just going to describe it in as stark terms as I know how Christina was in the middle of that circle and it looked as if something were grabbing her and slamming her face on the ground and she was crying out and screaming and shrieking, asking for help. And Christina, her friend who had brought me, turned around and looked at me and she said, what can you do, pastor? I said, I'm not a pastor, I'm just a kid. <laughs> and just in, in that split second, I knew two things and I knew it by spiritual discernment. I didn't have to figure it out. I knew she didn't have epilepsy or mental illness, which can be the case sometimes. I just knew in my knower I don't know how I knew, but I just knew in my knower that she was being oppressed by an evil spirit and that God was leading me to go and pray for her. And I was like, thanks a lot, God. So I walked right up to her and I mean like electricity shooting through my arms. I can't describe it in any other way than the way it actually was, folks. I grabbed her by the hands and I stood her up and I said, Christina, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are set free from this. You are set free. And when she stood up, she shrieked really loud I mean, she screamed as loud as I've ever heard a human being scream, and her eyes that were twitching all around stopped. She focused on me. She was in her right mind. She had sal, she had sal all over her face. Her, she was foaming at the mouth, and she looked over at her friend Christina, who was standing right next to me, and they fell into each other's arms and cried and cried and cried. 
And then they sort of whisked her back up to the front. They prayed with her and the rest of that camp, she was sitting there on the front row in her right mind. She was doing crafts with the other kids. She was worshiping and clapping and learning her Bible. Now that's only happened to me. I, I, that's only happened to me about five or six times in my adult life where God has used me that way to pray for somebody. So I don't want you going out of here thinking that I have the spiritual gift of demon exorcism, although it has come up on a spiritual gifts test. I will say that that has actually come up on a spiritual gifts test. But I I brought that up to tell you this. God still delivers people who are in the bondage of oppression. And he still loves them and he delivers him. And I haven't seen that much in my life, but I can tell you when I have seen it, it'll raise the hair on the back of your neck. But God loves, he loves to give people mercy And he loves to give them compassion, but as soon as he does, then he requires a response of faith. But sometimes he has to clear your head so you can think right and have faith. And so God is the one who brought her and delivered her into that church. And then she wrote me for almost two years afterwards to tell me about her life, that she was getting married and having a little baby and she was just in the life of the church. She had grown up in the occult. She had grown up being offered to idols just a horrendous thing. And this woman right here, her faith, she has her faith in the right object, Jesus of Nazareth, because Jesus has all the power to deliver people who are under the oppression of the devil. Number two, her faith was persistent in the face of an apparent denial. At first, it looks like Jesus is denying the request. If I were there and Jesus had been so rude to me, I would have left. How about you? She's not leaving. <laughs> She's not leaving. She's persisting in prayer. She's not leaving until she came, got what she came for. And the harsh reality is that she appears to be ignored by the one man who could and does have the power to set her poor daughter free. But as we saw, Jesus' lack of acknowledgement was just a test of responsiveness. He wants to see, do you really want this miracle? And he wants the disciples to see, this is what God does. This is the mercy and this is the compassion that God has for the outsider, the people who don't look like you or think like you or act like you. So she, despite the apparent denial, persists and doesn't stop asking. Jesus actually taught this in a parable. It's called the parable of the persistent widow. What a great title. It's perfect. It's apt to this very passage. And the persistent widow was a woman who in the parable, Jesus said, you know, the the judge wouldn't hear her case. Just kind of threw it out. She's a woman. She's a widow. Nobody listens to women in the first century, and nobody certainly listens to widows. But that woman followed that judge home and found out where he lived. She's shrewd. And then every day she showed up on his doorstep and knocked on his door and said, Judge, I need justice. And every day he would say, get out of here. Beat it. And every day she'd come back and, and she wore him out with her request. And finally, finally, the judge said, woman, I don't fear God and I don't fear man. And I swear, I'm just going to give you what you want to get you out of my face. And, and, she, and he answers her request and gives her the justice in court that she seeks, gives her the legal verdict she needs. Now, Jesus said, that guy's wicked. He's evil. He doesn't care about that woman. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't care about her. Now extrapolate. If an evil man like that can give a persistent person in prayer what they ask for, extrapolate now and think about just how much more God wants to answer your prayers. And the scripture says this. He taught them this parable so that they may may always pray and not give up. That's what it says. 
That's the purpose of that parable. Jesus wants you to come to God and assume that the answer is yes, not no. Please, whatever situation you're facing, whatever it is, do not come to God and mumble out some faithless prayer as if the God of the universe doesn't have time for you. Not only does he have time for you, you are his beloved. You're his child. You're in his family. And when you come, you should come boldly, expectantly, asking for a yes answer. And and understand that just because the answer is delayed doesn't mean that it's denied. It might just be delayed. And I want to tell you, I live in this world right now. I mean, I live in the world where every single day I show up in prayer and I just, I am praying and saying, God, I, I expect your answer to be yes. And if it's no, I can live with it because you're the sovereign God. God still has the sovereign right to say no, not yet, or not that way. Have you ever had a prayer that God answered and the answer was not yet, but eventually it was? Isn't that a blessing? Because God's timing is so good. Have you ever had a prayer that you asked and God's answer was not that way? Maybe it was for a spouse. That's what happened to me. I prayed. I wanted to marry this one girl in college because I thought she would be a perfect help meet or helpmate for me in ministry. And she was not the right person. And God did not answer that prayer the way I wanted him to answer it. But the person that he gave me was just absolutely ideal uh, partner for me. So it can be anything, but God reserves the right to say no, not yet, or not the way you thought. But she's going to persist anyway because she assumes that God has a heart to answer her. Number three, her faith was not presumptuous. I love this. (laughs) Now, she doesn't come to Jesus until he addresses her. She does not approach the master until the master actually speaks to her. And it seems harsh, but then she comes right over and kneels before him. And I tell you, the picture of her surrender her with a surrendered heart to the master. And her response shows that she was not presuming anything. She is not saying to Jesus, Jesus, I demand to have the inheritance of the children. She's saying, Jesus, if you just had a few scraps, I'll take the scraps. I'll take whatever falls off the table. Sure, I'm the dog, and I'll take whatever you got. (laughs) She is just humble and not presumptuous in prayer. And how much more are you and I blessed We just went through this uh, series on the book of Ephesians and what did we learn? That we have been blessed in in every way with every blessing in the spiritual or the heavenly realms. God has lavished us and poured out his blessings upon us as his children. Now we have no claim on Israel's covenants or promises. We have none. As Gentile people, we are adopted into the family by his grace. We are citizens now in his kingdom by his grace. Everything we have, we have it by his grace, but man, we can make a claim on it now because we are the adopted children of God and we can come boldly before the throne and ask and expect God to do mighty things. And I hope that is where your heart is today. I hope it is. A humble, self-effacing, not presumptuous faith. Fourthly, her faith was great faith. Well, Jesus says, this is what I wanted. (laughs) This is what I wanted to show the disciples. Did he ever say of the disciples, oh, the disciples, they have great faith? No. He often had to say to the disciples, you of little faith. Where is your faith? But he says to the woman, you have great faith. Now, what do we mean when we say that she has great faith? We do not mean a great quantity of faith. Now, she does have a great quantity of faith to believe Canaanite religion. 
Because Canaanite religion is wackadoo. It's messed up. Canaanite religion, their creation stories are so fantastical. They're just fantasy stories. It's fantasy literature. And when you read it, it does not square with reality, the world as we find it, at all. Canaanite religion had all kinds of pantheons and hierarchies of gods, Ashdod and Asherah, and they adopted Babylonian gods. And so they had all kinds of crazy gods in their system, and it was just a messed up religious system. And when you have a faith that is based on fantasy, you have to have a great quantity of faith. But when you have a faith that is based on fact, you only need a mustard grain of faith. When you have a faith that is based on a mountain of evidence, the way the New Testament faith is, or a great infinite God, then you only have to have a a microbe. You only need a small amount of it. So you can have a great quality of faith, small quantity of faith, and a great, magnificent, able, and willing God. And we need to come to God with that quality of faith that reflects the greatness of the one in whom we are asking. So now what do we do when God's answer is no? What if the answer is no? What if the thing that you're asking for right now, what if the answer in God's sovereignty is, I'm not going to answer that request the way you ask me to or not at all? That happened in the New Testament. Can you think of any prayers in the New Testament that God answered no? Jesus in Gethsemane. Jesus in Gethsemane is praying great drops of blood. And he is asking the Father to take this cup of wrath that he is about to drink and let it pass before him. And God's answer is, no, son. This is the plan. This is the path. How about James and Peter? Two men who were in the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And so you have James and Peter in prison about the same time. They're imprisoned about the same time. And the house church, the original church, is they are praying their hearts out for James and Peter's release. James is martyred. James dies in prison. Peter is released and has 25 more years of service to the Lord before he is crucified. God answers the prayer for Peter. He doesn't answer that prayer for James. What about Paul? Paul says in Galatians chapter four, in Galatians chapter four, he says, remember the circumstances over which I planted the church among you. He says, I was so sick when I came through the port of Pamphylia, which by the way was quarantined at the time. So he picked up this illness, whatever Pamphylia was quarantined with, and he picked it up and he took it just north into Galatia. And when he came into Galatia, he says, I can attest, I was so violently ill, sick, that you people would have torn your eyes out and given them to me if you had. He had some condition. And then he says over in 1 Corinthians, he gives us a little bit more light. He says, three times I cried out to God to remove this thorn in the flesh, which means a physical ailment. He says, three times I cried out to God to remove it. And God's answer was what? My grace is sufficient for you, which means no. No. Sometimes God's answer is no. But I don't come expecting no. I can live with no, but I come expecting to hear yes. Lewis said this in his book, A Grief Observed, when he was just working through the loss of his wife to cancer, to this horrific disease. He said, no one ever warned me that grief was so much like fear. He says, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or my love for him in order to find out 
the quality of it. He said he already knew that. It was I who didn't know it. He says, in this trial, he makes us occupy the seats, the witness stand, and the judge's bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize that fact was to knock that house of cards down. And I want to tell you that God wants to heal your body, and God wants to heal your family, and he wants to heal your marriage, and you should ask and expect him to say yes. He's a good good father, but this good father also has some faith lessons he wants to teach you, and the only way you and I can learn is to actually walk through the stuff, to go through it, and to go through it arm in arm and hand in hand with Jesus, and you will learn much more about God. You see, C.S. Lewis, Lewis had a profound faith before he started the journey with his wife, but he had a perf- perfected faith at the end of it. God had perfected his faith like the hammering and folding of steel. Will you pray with me? God, we're so grateful today for these little words, these little stories and lessons in the Bible. They're so rich. They're so deep. They're like an ocean and we can't exhaust them no matter how many years we study this book. That's what we love about the revelation that you've given us. And so, God, we just pray that you would help us to respond. We don't want to be like the residents of Karaz and Bethsaida and Capernaum. We don't want to just get a whole world well stocked with miracles and then just not respond with gratitude or faith or zeal. God, we want to be people of zeal. We want to be people who are enthusiastically putting our faith in you, the only God, the only true God. And God, so we give you that today. If you're here this morning and you feel like a religious Pharisee, all you have are the externals of religion. You just get up every day, kind of check the boxes, but your heart is cold. To God and the people Jesus died for, the people he loves, would you repent of that sin right now? Just repent of the sin of religion. If you're here today and you feel like, no, I could live in Karazim, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. I just kind of go through the motions and sing the songs and snooze the sermon away and I need to repent and I need to become a child of faith and a child of zeal would you just confess that to the Lord Lord we confess God I confess those times when my heart and my faith has just been dull and cold would you come and fill me with the Holy Spirit And if you're here this morning and you just have never turned your rebellious heart to Jesus in faith, would you do it right now? Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till you leave that room. Your eternal destiny is at stake. Turn your heart to Jesus now in faith and reach out with empty and open hands and he will fill it with grace and mercy and salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 